Chapter Eleven of Saint Charles Borromeo: A Sketch of the Reforming Cardinal by Louise M. Stackpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Eleven: The Stone of the Founder, the Cross of the Saint. The glorious colossal cathedral of Milan, rightly called the eighth wonder of the world, for it is ethereal yet gigantic, cloud-like and graceful and yet majestic, is fittingly dedicated to. Maurice Nascenti. The inscription on the façade tells us this. So does the delicate fairy gold statue, poised as though on the point of flying heavenward, on the summit of the tower over the dome. It is beautiful both within and without, this magnificent temple that is dedicated to the birth of the Mother of God. It is a dream of white splendor, this basilica built of purest marble, glimmering sometimes rose-red with an unearthly radiance when the setting sun touches with fairy light its airy pinnacles, or shining silver-white at noonday, when caressed and warmed by the full splendor of the brilliant Italian sunshine. We gaze spellbound, awestruck by its surpassing loveliness. Words fail us, and we can only feel that it is a mute witness of the eternal heavenward flight of the souls of men, their unquenchable longing through all time for beauty and grace of form, and their increasing thirst for perfection of stature and outline. Far be it from me to attempt to describe the superb, colossal white marble duomo, this embodied exaltation of purity and faith. It is the pride and joy of the Milanese of today. It is their tram-ridden, noisy, commercial twentieth-century city, as it was their glory and delight in the sixteenth century, the days when Cardinal Archbishop Charles Borromeo, having succeeded in reforming the secular clergy, turned his attention to the reformation of the cathedral and its chapter. To us it is almost divine. It is a dream too sublime, too heavenly for criticism or analysis. Charles, however, knew it was his duty not only to criticize but to reform. And he set to work with his usual sound common sense to perfect the dream, to bring order into the house of God, into the dwelling place that should have been devoted to silent prayer, or to the singing of canticles in praise of the Most High, but into which, as into most of the churches in Italy of that period, laxity and corruption had gradually crept, preventing prayer making a mock of reverence. Canons and functions alike had to be purified. The reforming cardinal began by somewhat despotically turning out the dead and gone lords of Milan, the Visconti and Sforza, and all that to them pertained. He swept ruthlessly away their tombs, their escutions, banners, standards, even the paintings representing their heroic deeds, and their armorial bearings were all cast out. They and their works were anathema in death, as in life, to the high-souled, stern ascetic. We know that he was but carrying out the decrees of the Council of Trent, that he acted in unflinching obedience to those decrees, for they strictly prohibited the burial of bodies in monuments, in churches. Yet we cannot help regretting that he was so very zealous and inflexible, for he effectually and uncompromisingly destroyed all the picturesque, priceless historic associations with a ruthless and unsparing hand. He swept away all the relics of the thrilling romantic past, destroying alike the emblems of its beauty, its truth, and its superb pride. Men say that the interior of the Cathedral of Milan is the grandest in the world. It is undoubtedly true, and if Charles Borromeo had not been consumed with such burning zeal, had not been so inflexibly determined to carry it out in the letter, as well as the spirit, the decrees of the Sacred Council, it would be not only the grandest, but the most romantically historical, and would be impregnated with the most fascinating medievalism. The zeal of thy house has eaten me up. It had indeed devoured the ascetic archbishop. 
and though it was right and fitting that he should prevent the living from trafficking in the duomo from chatting gossiping and taking shortcuts through its shadowy aisles though it was expedient that he should say to them in the words of the gospel take these things hence and make not the house of my father a house of traffic yet we wish that he had allowed the dead to rest in peace charles however while destroying with one hand gave new beauty and grace with the other he did much to embellish the interior though many think that he and his successor cardinal frederick borromeo or the architects employed by them succeeded to a certain extent in spoiling the exterior changing the pure gothic of the original design and what they left undone in the way of marring the harmonious original design napoleon i consummated in the interior charles restored and embellished the choir raising the high altar so that it could be visible to all the congregation the beautiful and richly ornamented tabernacle was the gift of our saint's uncle pius the fourth over it is an exquisite bronze ciborium a fine piece of sixteenth-century workmanship the handsomely carved gilt pulpits were also given and designed by charles though they were not finished during his lifetime but in that of his cousin cardinal frederick borromeo the archbishop found it absolutely necessary to close two of the principal doors for the citizens used them to facilitate their progress from one part of the town to another dashing through the house of god as though it were a convenient shortcut never pausing even to genuflect before the blessed sacrament but either rushing through at headlong speed or slowly sauntering along with their companions laughing jesting singing profane songs charles soon stopped the scandal and when the doors were walled up he erected beautiful and devotional altars in front of them he also abolished the plays and mummeries that for centuries at certain periods had taken place in the duomo these frolics had given rise to much evil and had been productive of but little good originally instituted by gian Galileo visconti as a means of procuring money towards the building of the cathedral they had degenerated into mad pranks and licentious farces the reforming cardinal would have infinitely preferred never to receive a penny for the church than to have got millions by such exhibitions of sinful frivolity and vice however in the long run he gained instead of losing for the people generously gave such large donations and munificent gifts that the money that would have been made by the mummeries was amply compensated for the cardinal wished his cathedral to be a model to the rest of his diocese he therefore devoted his time and attention to the regulation of its chapter the canons had each and all such a number of benefices that they were absolutely unable to attend to the services of the cathedral and often neglected the daily recital of the divine office charles had given an heroic example of disinterestedness he had resigned all his benefices except the see of milan when he asked the canons of the cathedral and the priests of the diocese to do likewise, they could not refuse to imitate him. One man, one benefice, was henceforth the rule, and in ordaining this, Charles was again acting in obedience to the decrees of the Council of Trent. Many of the canons were badly off, and, indeed, their poverty had in several cases been their reason for accepting a multiplicity of benefices. Charles came to their assistance, suppressed a few useless canneries, and divided their incomes among the canons and residents. They were now able to devote themselves unreservedly to their duties in the cathedral, preaching, hearing confessions, instructing the faithful, and performing their sacred functions with dignity and reverence. Charles decreed that the canons of the cathedral should, when in choir, wear during the greater part of the year the red robes of a cardinal, and that during Lent and Advent they should still follow the example of the princes of the church changing the red robe for violet consequently they were generally called by the people il signori cardinali del duomo 
Charles, we know, was passionately fond of music, and he proceeded to reform the choir, the music of which, as in Rome and throughout Italy, had become degenerate and worldly in character. The singers were divided into different choirs, and they were only allowed to use the organ. All other instruments were strictly prohibited. It is a curious fact that in Milan the liturgy is in some ways different from that used over the rest of the world. In the ritual of the Mass there are important divergencies, for in all the churches there they adhere to the old Ambrosian rite. It is simpler and sterner than ours, and the Milanese have been allowed for centuries by the sovereign pontiff to use it, because they are warmly attached to it, looking upon it as a traditional liturgy, and as an heirloom from ancient times. Of course, in matters of dogma and doctrine, the Milanese believe just what all Catholics believe. In no way does their faith differ from ours. It is only in their ritual that there are divergencies. The Ambrosian liturgy is said to have been compiled by St. Barnabas. It has certainly several Eastern attributes, and evidently belongs to the liturgical school of Ephesus. Its chief characteristic is an extra reading of Scripture, in addition to the Epistle and Gospel. It is called the Prophetia and is taken from the Old Testament. Then, also, the deacon makes a curious proclamation of silence before the epistle. There are a lay offering of the oblations, some unusual litanies, and in addition to the prayer for consecration, closely resembling the one used in the Greek rite, and on Palm Sunday, and at Easter, there are many ceremonies similar to those used in the Greek liturgy. Another rather puzzling difference is the change in the calendar, the numbering of the Sundays after Pentecost. There are also slight differences in the shape and use of the censers, and instancing of the altar in clergy, and the holding of the book of the gospel. The music is infinitely grander and more impressive, and as the organ is the only instrument used, naturally Charles, who wished to preserve in every detail the traditional liturgy, sternly insisted on the abolition of all others. It is a strange, never-to-be-remembered experience to assist at Holy Mass in the dreamlike, shadowy cathedral, a dim religious light just sufficient to cast the mystic glory over the lofty and spacious aisles, the beautiful mouldings, and the light, graceful arches, to fall with soft radiance on the magnificent high altar with its rich canopy, to light up the golden pulpits and the pure white marble screen round the sanctuary, and to turn to a deeper crimson the red robes signore cardinal del Duomo. Then the glorious music, the solemn majestic chant that seems not of earth but of heaven. It is a holy, arid, restful experience amidst the hurry and bustle of our Vidicolis. It stands out clear and distinct, and the memory of its beauty and peace is an enduring pleasure. I cherish another, nay, two other reminiscences of that fair white Duomo. The two things that most strongly appeal to me in that colossal wilderness of stately beauty that garden of exotic loveliness, were the stone of the founder, the crucifix of the saint. Entering the porch from the sunlit, noisy, tram-ridden piazza, one sees on the right hand, embedded in the wall, the stone recording the event that in 1386 Gian Galeazzo Maria Visconti, first Duke of Milan, laid the foundation of this colossal pile of white marble, the Duomo of Milan and that it was a votive offering from him to heaven for a son to inherit his great possessions. Thus it was dedicated not to the birth of Christ, but to the birth of the mother of Christ, Maria's Nascenti. On the third altar in the nave, on the left-hand side, is the plain wooden crucifix that Charles Borromeo, the reformer and apostle of Milan, carried in procession through the streets of the city 
during the terrible plague of 1576. These two so different objects have a strange charm and fascination, representing as they do, one the heightened summit of human grandeur and vaulting ambition, the other the sublime self-sacrifice, the superabundant overflowing charity of the follower of the crucified. End of chapter 11